Hi, this is Rick Middleton, former Boston Bruin, capital of Boston Bruins, and played for the New York Rangers for a short time. And you're listening to Follow Your Dream with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 192 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is former Boston Bruins hockey player, Frank Simonetti, who played four seasons with the team. He played college hockey at Norwich University and was then invited to the Bruins training camp as a free agent. He signed the contract on the bus while going to the last preseason game in 1984, and then he proceeded to score the winning goal in overtime against the reigning Stanley Cup champion New York Islanders. How's that for a debut, huh? Maybe you should have retired right then and there. You can't get better than that. It was one of my key moments of my career, for sure. I can imagine. He continues to play hockey as the president-to-be of the Bruins alumni team, and he's very active in two charities, Warrior for Life Fund and Bowl with the Bruin. And as you all know, I like to feature a song of mine in each episode underneath the introduction, and then we play it at the end. And I try to make my song choice relevant somehow to my guest or to the subject matter. And in this instance, it was easy because I am playing underneath right now a song that I wrote called Slapshot. And it's on the Queen's Carnival album by my band Project Grand Slam. See, I told you I'm a hockey fan. And I wrote this song Slapshot. And everybody knows that goals in the NHL, are a lot of them at least, are scored by Slapshot. So I think it works. Frank Simonetti, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Uh, thank you for having me, Robert. So you played in the NHL and, you know, you're an American guy and there's not that many American guys that play in the NHL. What percentage would you say are American? I think it's on the order of 15% in today's game. Yeah. But back in the 80s, it was even uh, lower than that. But in, in the Boston area, we had Bobby Orr come to town in 1966, and I was born in 62. So things started getting hot in the area with him uh, taking the Bruins from the basement to the uh, top of the league, and every mother and father wanted their kid to play hockey, and I was uh, no different. So because of Bobby Orr and the Big Bad Bruins, that got me and many other kids in the area into hockey. Well, I want you to know, I went to college in Boston during the Bobby Orr era, ah. you know, I remember all those guys from Esposito and Busick and Hodge, and it was a great team. And there was that one moment, which you know about, but I want to make sure my listeners know about when Bobby Orr scored the winning goal in the Stanley cup. And he went flying in front of the, the, the goal mouth. I mean, they captured that in a photograph. It's one of the great photographs in all the sports, isn't it? It's an iconic photo, and it was uh, to clinch the Stanley Cup in overtime against the St. Louis Blues, if I, if I remember correctly. And it is everywhere uh, around the Boston area. In fact, it's probably one of the most sought-after uh, autographs uh, in, in, in the hockey world is to having an authentic 
Bobby Orr flying through the air uh, autographed picture. It is uh, tremendous. I mean, in that time era, Bobby Orr was the guy, right? He was the best player in hockey, wouldn't you say? He was head and shoulders above a lot of players in the league because he took a typical defensive role and turned it into an offensive weapon by the his ability to skate and to carry the puck and make plays and shoot. And he was one tough SOB on the ice. People think he was just a great <laughs> skater, but he was as, uh, you don't want to use the word dirty, but he was as aggressive as they come. Uh, he had sharp elbows. He never uh, backed down from anybody on the ice. And if you wanted to tussle with Bobby or you had your hands full. You know, this was the era, and I've talked about this one other time on this podcast. This was the era before helmets in the NHL and before goalies wore face masks. I mean, can you imagine having played during that era? I really can't because I mean, you look at Bobby Hull, he was shooting the puck well over 100 miles an hour during that era. And you've got goalies like Gump Worsley, who didn't wear a mask. In fact, he was, I believe he was the last goaltender to, uh, uh, to not wear a mask while everybody around him didn't wear a helmet. And the game happens fast, sticks, blades, a lot of things happening. And it's, it's a wonder more guys didn't get hurt. But conversely, there was a lot more respect for the head region uh, during that time because, hey, I don't have a helmet. You don't have a helmet. Let's keep our sticks down. Now, with helmets and shields and in college ranks, they have cages. A lot of stick work happens above above the neck now. And that's, that's a problem for the game, but uh, they're trying to work through it. That's interesting. You know, from a fan's perspective, it was really something. In the 70s, you know, everybody had long hair back then. And guys like Guy Lafleur and Bobby Nystrom, they're flying down the ice and their hair is flying behind them. That was a very cool scene from a fan perspective. Well, I agree with you, Robert. And, you know, in Boston, we had Derek Sanderson, right. uh, who was uh, well-known around uh, Boston and New York and other places for his on-ice and off-ice activities. <laughs> loved, loved Derek uh, like a brother. But players had uh, recognition back then without helmets, without face shields, and without player movement. Players were uh, well-known within their community. And you see him on the ice, you get Pine McKenzie, you've got, you know, uh, John Busick, Kenny Hodge, Phil Esposito, everybody knew who they were uh, in the community and they carried themselves with such character around town. And that's what got mothers, fathers, mothers mostly watching hockey because they saw these cute guys running around the ice. I know my mother was a big <laughs> fan of the Bruins because of that. I got to tell you, I grew up in New York City. And in the area that I grew up, I, I lived in Queens, the Rangers, half the team lived in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, Gump Worsley's daughter, for example, went to my high school. And you're right. All the people in the neighborhood, we would see the, you know, the Rangers walking around town. Everybody knew them. Guys weren't making that much money back then. A no. lot of guys had, you know, second jobs and the like. But it was a more of a community type of thing. I agree with you. And if you ask any reporter or even fan who are the most approachable athletes back then and even now, it's hockey players. For whatever reason, the way they grew up, maybe the environments that they came from, the hockey players are the most approachable athletes out there. Um, in my opinion, they do a lot of work for charity and they do a lot of things um, to support people and help people without asking for anything in return or without looking for accolades or, or publicity. 
It's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful community to be part of. That's nice. You know, I went to college in Boston, undergraduate, and you probably know this because you're from the area, but every year in uh, the Boston area, they have a tournament called the Beanpot Tournament. Sure do. And there's four teams that play in it, Boston University, which was my school, Boston College, Harvard, and Northeastern. And I used to love going to those games. I mean, first of all, it had all of the spirit that you want from college athletics. And then you had these kids on the ice. And they, from my perspective, they were all great. And it was like a training ground for the NHL. And no doubt about that. It's uh, one of the events that as a kid you wanted your dad to get tickets to because a lot of the kids aspired to play for one of these big D1 teams that played in the Beanpot. And even when we played for the Bruins, we'd go in and watch. If we were in town, we'd watch the Beanpot because there were a few guys from BC and BU in the league on the team, and they wanted to see their team uh, perform and, and do well. And uh, now, was it BU you went to? I went to BU, yes. Well, congratulations, because BU won this year's Beanpot yeah. uh, after a couple-year drought. But what you said about the games, they were high-intensity playoff games. These kids were playing for their schools. They were playing for uh, potential NHL contracts. I mean, it was to win the Beanpot was almost like winning the ECAC championships. It was that big of a deal for those four schools. And I tell you, what was so much fun was they had all four schools, I think, were in the arena at the same time because they had two games back to back, at least when I went. So you had the band from each of the schools, you know, in each of the corner of the arenas and they're playing the marches and they're playing the the fight songs and all of that. You had the fans from each of the universities. I mean, it was such a wonderful emotion that was going on in that arena. Yeah, it's and it's tough to duplicate that. They've tried to do other tournaments like that midseason in different leagues, and it just hasn't had the gravitas and the excitement behind that. There's so much. I forget the years of 40 years of bean pots. It's tough to recreate that without having grown it up from uh, ground level to where it is today. It's, uh, it's iconic. All right. So you come into the NHL in 1984, correct? Correct. Okay. And you're an American kid. You're, you're in a league where it's almost completely dominated by Canadians. How were you treated? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Uh, so my, my, my road to the NHL was, was interesting uh, I did well at Norwich University, which is a Division Three school, and it's not a uh, roadmap to the NHL by any stretch. Uh, I got an invite to play in a summer league run by the Bruins uh, regional uh, scout, uh, Joe Lyons. And he says, you know, if you do well in the summer league, I'm going to you know, see if I can get you an invite to camp. So I, got, I did well, got the invite to camp, played in uh, nine of 11 uh, preseason games, uh, culminating in the one in Providence against the uh, New York Islanders. And all during this time, Robert, guys, Americans, Canadians, whoever was there in training camp get, kept getting sent back to their respective teams, juniors to, uh, to their hometown, outright released. And no one told me anything. And I had never been to a pro camp. I didn't know what was going on. Camp breaks, camp ends. I'm still there. I go up to the assistant trainer and say, where do I go? He goes, you made the team, kid. And for a free agent, walk-on, local kid from Boston who grew up 10 miles from the garden, that was a mind-blowing experience. Wow. But it had never really happened in the Harry Sinden era with the Bruins. So uh, sometimes 
things change. And three days later, we're at the annual golf tournament, Hollaback Logan Golf Tournament that the Bruins used to participate in. And I see this golf cart coming out to the hole I'm at. And this girl says, are you Frank Simonetti? I said, yes, I am. She goes, Mr. Sinden would like to talk to you. So I get the phone number from her. I go find a pay phone, which was hard to do. <laughs> right. uh, and I call uh, Mr. Sinden, Harry Sinden. He says, Frank, great camp. But we have had a little change of heart. We're going to send you to Hershey, Pennsylvania for some seasoning. Boom. Now, now I'm a little deflated because, you know, you make the team, then you didn't. So I go to Hershey and uh, one of the first days, so circle back to your question, Robert. One of the first days I'm sitting there again uh, next to another defenseman and he's from Canada and he looks at me, he goes, what the hell are you doing there? So what do you mean? <laughs> I, he goes, I'm, 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 I'm part of the, the Bruins organization. He says, you're an American. You're taking jobs away from my Canadian brothers. Wow. And I'm going, wow. Okay. Uh, so that kind of set the tone. We, he and I didn't get along very well after that. And there was, you know, some, some grit, there's some hazing that goes on and all back then hazing and in, in, uh, in, in sport was kind of common, especially in hockey. So they, you know, they, they roughed you up a little bit. They, uh, you know, didn't treat you with the utmost of respect, but that was all part of the deal. And then I get called up it, later that December and spend very little time with the Hershey bears and then finish the season with the Bruins. But yeah, you, I got, uh, here's another good story for you. So during training camp, one of the first two games was against the Buffalo Sabres in Rochester, New York. And we flew down and we stayed at a hotel right next to the arena. We were walking across from the hotel to the arena. And one of the veterans says to me, so, hey, uh, you're an engineer. I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree from Norwich. He goes, what do you do? Drive trains? <laughs> I said, no, I designed them. And I kept walking <laughs> and he and I didn't get to get, get along very well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's part of the ritual. They're going to haze the new guys and they're certainly going to haze the American new guys. But, but now a lot of that's changed in the league and everybody's treated with respect and they just want the best players on the ice to do well. Well, now you got so many guys from so many different countries. You got all the European guys that are there. You got the Russian guys too. Oh, I know. So yes, it's a different league. All right. Tell me a little bit. You must've played against some of the greats in hockey. Who are the guys that you really just remember being just unbelievable to play against? Well, I played with some greats. That's true. Okay. Do that too. Ray Bork, Rick Middleton, Terry O'Reilly, Cam Neely, uh, Barry Peterson. I mean, the teams that I was able to play on in those four years were, were chock full of guys. A couple are in the Hall of Fame. Many have their numbers retired. But I was able to play against Guy Lafleur at the tail end of his career, and that was wonderful. The triple crown line from, uh, from the L.A. Kings, Charlie Simmer and company. Some tough guys like Chris Nyland and uh, Pro Bear and the New York Rangers teams with Ron Duguay and Ron Greshner and that whole crew. I mean, they were just stacked. And for me, we, we talk about dreams and that's, that's your, your podcast. Uh, very few Americans dreamt of becoming an NHL player. I kind of did at the end because it was a little interest when I was at Norwich, but now you're sitting there on the bench, looking around at guys you, idolized growing up right. and then you're on the ice playing against guys you saw on tv and you idolized no oh, holy crap this is really cool but <laughs> quickly you fall into it 
in the talent level of these guys and the um, and the physical uh, prowess that some of these elite players had. And you know, and I always get asked this question: Who's the best player you ever played against? And everybody thinks you're going to say Wayne Gretzky, right? Okay, as a defenseman, I said, no, no, it's easy. It's Mario Lemieux. Uh huh. Pittsburgh Penguin. Pittsburgh Penguin. Big, strong, fast, talented. He could go half speed and blow by people. He had a wingspan of about 12 feet when he moved the puck from one side to the other. So as a defender, you know, you had to basically guess which way he was going to go and try to get in his way. He scored three goals against us on multiple occasions, four goals against us in another game. You do your best. You knew where he was on the ice all the time, and it didn't matter. He was that good. And come playoff time, he would even elevate his game even further. So Gretzky was unbelievable, obviously, but Mario Lemieux, in my book, from a defensive standpoint, was the most difficult guy to play against. So interesting. Now, you, as a defenseman, you had to go down and take shots into your body, didn't you? Yeah, depending on the goaltender we had, some goalies didn't want you to block shots. Really? Uh, back then, other guys did. And then they'd instruct you, you know, if you're going to go down, really go down. So you block the low and I'll take the high. Today's game, all the players try to block shots. They have Kevlar uh, coated skates. They've got the better equipment. They're blocking shots and they keep track of that now. How many shot blocks per game per season. Right. But back then, yeah, you, you went down and you blocked shots. And, uh, you know, if you caught one just right, you felt it for a week or two. I can imagine. I always thought it would hurt like hell to take a, a puck that's being slap shot at 100 miles an yeah. hour or something like that right into your body. Yeah, you get a lot of uh, kudos from your teammates when you do it, though. I mean, it's part of the team building process. <laughs> I can imagine. All right. Now, you weren't an enforcer back then, no, were you? No, no, no. Okay, but every team seemed to have an enforcer. Okay, how did that come about? What do you think about that whole thing? Well, I think it's an important part of hockey, and it's it's being pushed out now. But you have skilled players on your team, and the enforcers are there primarily to, to keep other players' enforcers or other teams from taking liberties, as we used to call them, with <laughs> your skilled players. So if you had a guy like we had Terry O'Reilly on our team, uh, we were teammates. He also became uh, my coach later uh, in my career. He was, I, I, there are words, I can't find words to describe it. He played with injuries upon injuries. And when it was, when there was a need on the ice to answer the bell and go take on, you know, the Chris Nylans of the world or the John Cordick, so you name it, he was always there regardless of what his body was feeling. And we had other guys too, like Jay Miller, uh, Cam Neely, one of the best players, power forwards in the league. But if you got him mad, uh, he could take it to the to the woodshed pretty pretty easily. In fact, a lot of a lot of defensemen wouldn't go near Cam Neely because they didn't want to upset him. They'd say, <laughs> "Okay, Cam, I'm 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 over here, but I'm really not I'm really not dinging you too bad. Don't don't turn around and punch me." You know. You know, there used to be a saying back in the day about uh, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Okay, <laughs> because there were just so many fights that took place. And I guess some of the fans loved it and uh, others just thought it was, you know, show business and it got in the way. What did you think? I don't know. I think it's, part, like I said, part of the game. And there were bench clearing brawls back back in the 70s, less so in the 80s, but there still was bench clearing brawls. It had a part in the game. And I think every hockey player respected the guys that would go toe to toe because uh, it was a code. 
you did get some players that uh, were, were on, on the dirtier side that you had to keep an eye out. You had to know where they were on the ice because they, they'd use their stick on you and uh, you know, they'd try to hurt you. Fortunately, there weren't many of those guys, but you knew who they were. I won't mention names, but you knew who they were and where they were on the ice. Uh, but for the most part, the fighters fought the fighters. The skilled players, you know, use their skills against other skilled players. And the rest of us just try to keep up and, uh, you know, contribute to the team as a whole. I can see. All right. So Mario Lemieux was the best guy you went up against. Who was the best goalie that you went up against? Oh, I'm going to say Patrick Roy for the Canadians. We had the toughest time beating him. He's a Hall of Famer. I believe he has the most wins in NHL history. We had a tough time. There was, a, I think, close to a 40-year run where the Bruins didn't beat the Canadians in the playoffs. Uh, something along those 30 40 years. 40 years, wow. Yeah, it was, every, it was one and done. Uh, we'd, 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 we'd seemed to play them in the first round many, many times. And we'd compete. We'd have great series, but the puck would bounce one way or the other, and the Canadians would beat us. In 1988, uh, the Bruins finally broke that curse with uh, Reggie Lemel in a net and Andy Moog, and that's the year the Bruins went on to the Stanley Cup Finals to lose to Wayne Gretzky uh, and the Edmonton Oilers, who had an absolute wagon of a team at that time. Yeah. Okay, so when you made your debut, you went up against Billy Smith from the Islanders. And the Islanders had this the two goalie thing going on at that time, I would imagine, with Glenn Chico Resch and Billy yeah. Smith alternating. That must have been so exciting for you to, to score that overtime goal. Well, you know what they say? Don't think you'll hurt the team. Rob, you ever <laughs> hear that expression? I was just playing on autopilot. I was walking around on cloud nine. I mentioned, you mentioned I had signed my contract on the bus ride on the way down. My mother and father were in the stands. Was, I think it was a 10,000 seat capacity arena. It was sold out, filled with Islander and Bruin fans. It was a, it was a hammer and tong kind of game because the last preseason game of the year, each team puts their full complement of players out there. And so the they're Islanders for had real. They're playing for real. The Islanders had their Stanley Cup champion team on the ice. We had our team, and it was great. And just to come down the slot, I remember I got the pass from Tom Fergus. And just it seemed so easy at the time, Robert. It seemed so easy. There was the open little corner of the net. I just gave it a nice wrist shot. I went in, and I jumped <laughs> a couple of feet. I felt like I jumped 10 feet in the air. I'm sure it was six or eight inches, but I felt so good after that game. And your mother and father must've been kissing everybody in the stands and giving oh them the high God, fives, that's right? My, I'm sure they said, that's my son. There's no <laughs> doubt about it in my mind. And that, and that makes me proud that they were there and happy that they were there to see that. That's terrific. All right. Talk a little bit about these charities that you're involved with warrior for life fund and bowl with the Bruin. Tell us about those. So the Warrior for Life Fund, I was introduced to a group of uh, Naval Warfare Special Operators, commonly known as Navy SEALs, that uh, use hockey in the Virginia Beach area to uh, decompress after a long deployment. During the War on Terror, these guys were gone for six, nine months, sometimes a year. And they came back with their minds, you know, full of turmoil from what they've, they had to do and what they saw. And they would seek out the hockey the hockey rink to go play because one thing if you if you played hockey it, when you're on the ice you can't think of anything else it's the game because there's so many moving parts and they would come to decompress they would come to 
to help them with their sleep issues, to get to, to run down, to keep their bonds of their service going, because they'd come back from having a tight, tight situation with their team overseas. And then they get back on the ice when they got home and they were able to, you know, kind of settle out those bonds and uh, lower their tension levels so they could assimilate better into the, the community. So it's like a therapeutic thing for these guys. It is very therapeutic. And the other cool thing about it is, let's say you're, you're, you're a team guy, you're deployed and you're away for nine months. Some of the guys that rotate back in, they'll take your son or daughter to go play hockey with them uh, to keep that mentorship, their father figure uh, around while they're deployed. So it was a very hand in glove relationship. So I went down, I had an invite, went down to play in one of their memorial hockey games at honors team guys that were, were killed in action. And it's closed door. Uh, me and Bob Beers from the Bruins alumni were invited down. We got to dress with these heroes, not just them, retired guys, their wives, their kids, both teams getting out on the ice for a very, I'm going to use the word loving, uh, very communal, very therapeutic thing. And I came back from that, from meeting these people who were so like an NHL hockey player, Robert, the same type of mentality, the same type of humbleness, camaraderie. I sat in their locker room and they were giving the zingers back and forth like we do. You know, I'm not equating the missions that they had with what, what hockey players right. go through, but it's the same kind of run through a wall mentality. And I came back just fired up to help them in any way I could. What we, they, they play in a converted grocery store that doesn't have proper uh, bathroom facilities or showers. They have a sled hockey team made up of warriors that have been wounded, lost limbs. They don't have an ADA compliant bathroom at the time. So we've been helping through this Warrior for Life Fund that we founded about three years ago to raise money to build them a better facility attached to the existing rink so they can dress in private, have a locker room, have a place to store their equipment, to give a, a team room kind of atmosphere they, that they can go to 24-7 and bond with their brethren that they went overseas with veterans that have you know went before them and just to have a place to go and unwind and then go play the game that they love that has helped them so much that's great i'm passionate about it and it segues into the bowl with the bruin uh robert that i started doing a, it'll be my seventh year this year I, I ride for the boston bruins foundation pan mass challenge team which raises money for dana farber uh, each year Dana Farber is the Cancer Institute, right? Cancer Institute in Boston. Uh, this this Pan Mass Challenge ride has been going on for 42 years. The Bruins team, Bruins have put a team in for 16 years. This will be my 15th year riding. And the bowling event was developed to help me raise my required funds because you, you ride this event, you're going to raise $5,000, $6,000. They, they mandate that, which is all great. So what I did was I said, okay, what can I do with my friend, Richie McDonald? What can I do aside from just asking people for money outright? So we modeled it after a golf tournament where a foursome will come in and get put in with a celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. So we said, why don't we just have a bowling team and I'll get my alumni friends to come in and then we'll put them with each of these teams. We'll call it bowl with a Bruin. And we'll see what we do. And it sold out the first year, 16 teams, 
Second year, we got all 36 lanes in this beautiful facility in Tewksbury, Mass, Wamasid Lanes. And now it's split. I Half the funds go to the Pan Mass Challenge and the other half go to the Warrior for Life Fund now. So we have ex-Navy SEALs come up as our celebrities. We have Boston Bruins alumni. We have local comedians and, 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 and media figures. It's grown so much, Robert, that people want to be part of this event. And it warms my heart. It brings me joy that I can do something that brings awareness to these two causes and to help raise funds for these two causes while taking advantage of the, uh, the Bruins connections here in this town uh, that I so love. That's terrific. Really, really, you're to be congratulated, congratulated for that. How's your bowling, by the way? Well, the beautiful thing about bowling, Robert, is you don't have to be able to bowl. People are afraid of golfing because you need to special equipment. It takes time. Don't tell me you put those things in the, in the gutters that keep the ball going down the lane. <laughs> no, we don't have the bumpers set up, but uh, anybody can bowl, which is the beauty of this event. I bowl okay uh for my once or twice a year that i go bowling you may remember bobby carpenter he was the he was 18 years old he went right from high school to the nhl uh we grew up playing against each other i invited him to play I said frank he goes i i stink at bowling i said come on out bobby come on out anyway he crushed the field his, his <laughs> level of stink is way better than everything else so athletes are so competitive you know this he's They're a like high musicians. level stinker huh <laughs> he's a high level stinker so uh yeah, bowling is fun, and we have families and kids come out. There's candle pin, there's ten pins. Uh, if anybody's interested in sponsoring or getting involved, it's bowwithabruin.org. And if anybody's interested in supporting the Warrior for Life Fund, it's warriorforlifefund.org. They're both worthy charities, and any support that uh, anybody wants to bring to the table, more than happy to talk to them. All right. It sounds like two wonderful organizations. You're to be congratulated for your participation. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Frank, for being on the podcast. It's a joy to speak to you and to find out what it was like to be in the NHL. You're in the, you're, you were in the minority as an American against all these Canadians. You did so well <laughs> four years in there and you scored the overtime goal. That's the best thing of all. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off the uh, episode. It's my song called Slapshot. And I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Thank you. 